chapter 17 ends the discourse that began back in chapter 13, the night in which Jesus would be betrayed, the night that began with all of them gathering together for a feast in an upper room. And from the very beginning, this night was different. It was much more different than all other nights that these men had encountered with Jesus. They were on the cusp of another Passover celebration. This would have been their third Passover celebration that they had with Jesus. And each year seemed to bring new surprises, new miracles, new revelations. These men must have been very much looking forward to celebrating the, pa the Passover with Jesus. But what they could not see, what they didn't know, what even though they had been told that the hour of the Lord was upon them, was just how different this Passover would be. It would be the last Passover that they would celebrate as Jews. It would be the last Passover they would celebrate with blinders on, not seeing the lamb that was slaughtered every year as the shadow of the reality of the Lamb of God, who would soon take away the sin of the world. They had feasted with Jesus before. There have been plenty of occasions that they had been at a party with Jesus, at feasts, at events, at weddings. But this night was different. This night, as they gathered in that upper room, Jesus sat them around a table as he specifically desired them to be. With Peter at the end of the low U-shaped table, reclining in the lowest of the positions, and with John and Judas on the other side of him, with Judas being given the position of the honored guest, and John the spot of the right-hand man. But before they could even begin to eat, he, Jesus, strips down and approaches Peter to wash his feet. This was unheard of. This was uncalled for. This was very peculiar. This was a very strange night indeed. And after washing the feet of all the disciples, including Judas, Jesus then redresses and explained the meaning behind him stripping down and washing the feet of his disciples. Beginning in verse 13, he said, You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Jesus was leading by example. He didn't do this for show. He didn't do this to curry favor with him. He wasn't that kind of leader. We know this is so because of Philippians 2, 5 through 8, which says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And then the very next thing that Jesus did is also to be emulated by us. Again, he was leading by example. He begins telling these men uncomfortable truths. In verse 18 of chapter 13, right after the foot washing, he said this, 
I'm not speaking to all of you. I know whom I've chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. To them, that must have seemed very cryptic, like there must have been meaning behind those words. Is Jesus just being passive-aggressive with us? Is he one of those mystic types that are always saying things that seem to have meaning but just don't make sense? No. For the very next thing that we are told is found in verse 21. And then after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Have you guys ever considered why Jesus became troubled in his spirit concerning Judas betraying him? Was he scared? Was he scared? Mad? Was he filled with trepidation over the coming events over the next couple hours? Had he made Judas in charge of the money bag to give him just enough rope to hang himself? Had he chosen Judas to be one of his disciples but never really cared for him? After all, we know clearly that he knew who was his and who was not. Had he set Judas in the seat of honor on this last night for a malicious reason? No. Jesus loved. He knew that Judas wasn't of him. He would never be of him, could never be of him, and yet he still loved this man. He never excluded him, derided him, treated him like he was different than the rest of the disciples. But there was a difference between he and they. They were chosen by God, and he was not. We humans, though, we're a fickle, silly bunch of people. Because we actually think that there are qualities within us that should cause Jesus to take a liking to us. That the chosen disciples were a better bunch of thieves, liars, and backbiters than that non-chosen Judas. That they loved Jesus more, that they cared about him more, and that they did this on their own, and not because they had the Holy Spirit living alongside of them, already working in them. No, the reason Jesus became trouble in his spirit is because Jesus is God and God is love. And love tells the truth. It doesn't wait for an opportune time. It doesn't harbor ill will and lay traps. It tells the truth in love. Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And when the disciples heard this, they were shocked. Because they understood that none of them were better than the rest of them. That any of them could and would betray Jesus. Which is why they began discussing among themselves, who is it? Which ended with Peter asking John to ask Jesus who it was in verse 25. Which brings us to verses 26 and 27 of chapter 13. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. 
Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, What you're going to do, do quickly. Which then brings us to verses 31 and 32 of chapter 13. When, Ju- when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. This was a very strange night indeed. And that was just the beginning of this night. Verse 1 of our text today begins the end of this night. And this night ends as it began by Jesus leading by example. After spending a prolonged time instructing the disciples concerning not only his coming death and glory, he also instructed them concerning their life and the effects that would happen upon them because they were of him, because they had been chosen to be his, that the world would hate them, kill them, hunt them down like animals, all the while doing it as if they were doing God a favor. And what we have before us today has been called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. It's a prayer that can't be emulated by mere mortals, but it is a prayer that demonstrates what a truly good leader looks like, acts like. The 26 verses of chapter 17 are all a single prayer, prayed out loud in front of the disciples, men who had been specifically chosen by God to be the vessels used to bring about the birth of something new, the pangs of which they were already beginning to feel. And this prayer has at its center one object, one purpose, the glorification of the Father and the glorification of the Son. And this prayer can be broken into three parts. And all three parts beginning with who it is that Jesus is specifically praying for. Today's verses, verses 1 through 5, are all about the Father and the Son. Verses 6 through 19 are all centered on these men, the disciples. And then verses 20 through 26 concern us, the church. All those that believe because of the testimony and actions of these men. And all three of these sections all follow the same five-step process. Each begins with who Jesus is praying for. Each has a theme of glory. Each of them address the Father partway through it. Each of them mention the people that are given to Jesus by the Father, and each of them has a theme of Jesus revealing the Father to the world. Now let's begin digging into the first part of the three parts of this prayer. Verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. One problem that we humans have is that we forget things. And the older that we get, the more we forget. Specifically, I'm referring to the context 
that this prayer happens in, which is why I spent the time reminding of us of how we got to where we are and even where here is. Jesus begins praying to his Father on the heels of speaking to his disciples. And the last thing that we have recorded being said by him to them is this. Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Verses 31 through 33 of chapter 16. And this was the answer back to the disciples who had made the physical Jesus into their own version of God, who had determined that, that what they needed most from him was instruction. Perhaps a course correction. Maybe some head knowledge. Then they would be good to go. And this isn't a foreign concept to us here. We are no different than these men are. Because there are those who are sitting here who think that they are all that, just like these men did. You compare yourself with others, and you find that you have higher intelligence than others, greater understanding. And for this reason, you'll come to Jesus for head knowledge. But you're humble, so you determine you need a teacher, a discipler, and only the best will do for you. So you come to Jesus with your notebook open, pen at the ready, waiting for droplets of wisdom to fall from his mouth as you determine if they are worthy to be written down and applied in your life or not. You have made an idol out of Jesus. You, like these men, have taken the Son of God, who is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, and you have stripped him of his glory. He doesn't need to take your sin away. You don't sin. At least not like that guy. I will never use foul language like them. I'm always proper in my attire. My house is always spick and span. Not like those that can't manage themselves. The Son of God is of value to you only in and as far as you deem to accept him to be. Oh, he could teach you. He may be allowed to challenge you in your thinking, at least on some things. You have made him God in your head. But he hasn't redeemed you from you. You don't need that. You like you. You are, after all, you. You can't change who you are. In fact, the reality is, you don't desire to change who you are. Even though you know what a mess you are, that you have an addictive personality, that you're controlling, manipulative, selfish, you come to listen to the word of God just like the college student comes to listen to a lecture by a professor, looking to pick up some more information, but never realizing that what you need to do is surrender to die, to stop all this nonsense and come to Christ. This was 
where these men were at this moment. But Jesus would not be worshipped in that manner. He wouldn't be the people's version of, ki- of their king back in chapter 6, and he wouldn't be the disciples' version of king either. Their version did not include an hour for them or him. They had specifically left out their profession, left that out in their profession of faith back in chapter 16. When he said, when they said to him, Ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and no one needs to question you. This is why we believe you came from God. They didn't need reconciliation. They didn't need regeneration. They just needed a leg up. But Jesus wouldn't be their leg up. He never wavered from pronouncing the charred truths that there was an hour coming that would end his earthly ministry and bring pain, burial, death, and resurrection. Verse 1 again. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Here, in verse 1, we are given who it is that Jesus is talking to you and even what he's concerned primarily about. All three parts of this prayer are directed to who he is addressing right now. He is speaking to the Father. And the first thing that he speaks about concerns his hour. And the disciples, when they heard this, had to have been thinking, can't he just let this hour thing go? Can't he understand that every time he speaks about this hour, that my stomach turns completely upside down? Just the thought of the reality of this hour, that we're going to be hated, hunted down, and killed. It scares us. It scares the living daylights out of me. Again, this is where we have made an idol out of the physical Jesus. Listen to Jesus speaking about this hour back in chapter 12, when he said, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me for this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven and said, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. This hour wasn't an easy hour for Jesus either. But Jesus knew that this was the purpose of his ministry here on earth. That his ministry was a ministry of reconciliation. That it was a rescue mission that could only happen when he stood on truth, stood for truth, and was willing to die for truth. But make no mistake, this hour was not for man. It was for God. It was for the glory of God. Which is why Jesus follows up the acknowledgement that this hour is the, of the, the greatest trial for him was upon him. With this prayer to his father. Glorify your son that your son will glorify you. Saints, we have been given the supreme privilege of being those that are chosen by God. To be sons of God. And being a son comes with supreme privilege. 
the supreme privilege of partnering in the ministry of reconciliation that was the ministry of Jesus. But if we are not careful, we can make an idol out of Jesus even as we share in his ministry of reconciliation. And we do this when we tell people about God. Preach salvation to them, for them, and not him. People were never the focus of the ministry of reconciliation of Christ. Glory was. Glory to the Father. Glory to the Son. And this is why we must preach Christ and him crucified. Does he redeem people? Is he not the Savior of the world? Is he not the only access to the Father? Yes. But those are attributes of his. Not his persons. Not his purpose. Not his essence. Preaching Jesus in this manner is the same as making your spouse only of value to you for what they can do for you. When we preach Jesus as a leg up for hurting people, our focus is on them. I got a pill for that for you, brother. I can help you with that. And not for him. Not, Lord, you are worthy of all glory. You are the Savior of the world. And all men must fall at your feet in worship. This is why we should tell people about the Lord. Because of him. And not the effects of him. Salvation is an effect of him. Damnation is an effect, the result of our sin against him. This may seem trivial, but it is important in keeping the biblical Jesus on the throne of your heart and not placing your idea, your understanding, your easier Jesus on that throne. And in verse 2, Jesus continues to speak to the why of the glorification of the Son as he glorifies the Father. When he says, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. The father has given to the son that which is his, which was his before it was given to him. That may seem like an oxymoronic statement. But we must always be reminding ourselves through correct biblical language that the father and the Son, and the Spirit are all one, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Because if we're not careful in doing that, we can become unorthodox in our theology and subject the Son to a lesser place alongside of the Father. That is an ancient heresy called Arianism that brought about the Council of Nicaea in 325 and the Nicene Creed. The council of what? The creed of what? Who cares about something that happened 1,700 years ago? And what in the world is a creed? We should care. And we should know. And we should hold to these creeds. Because God decreed those heresies that rose even from the very beginning of the church to purify it, to bring to light the very, in very clear terms, orthodoxy which is what happened at the Council of Nicaea. And here is that creed 
that came out of that council. Council, listen to the very precise words that they use in describing our God. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us men and for our salvation he came down from heaven and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate and he suffered death and was buried and rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who was spoken through the prophets. I believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. And we're satisfied with the Toby Mac version, Jesus is my homeboy. And then verse 2 speaks about the thing that Jesus brings. The thing that these men who thought that they needed only a good mentor, the thing that all humans, all humans who are outside of Jesus lack, life. The death of Christ on the cross was for the purpose of life. Him giving his flesh for all flesh. He gives his flesh for all flesh. I'm saying that exactly the way I want to say it. He gives his flesh for all flesh. This is the meaning of the resurrection of the dead that will happen when all men are brought into their glorified bodies. But that doesn't mean that he will give his death for all to have life. Because Christ separates within humanity. Only his separation has nothing to do with the outside of a person, their economic status, their gender or ethnicity. It has only to do with one thing and one thing only. Eternal life is only given to those that are given by the Father to the Son. But what is this eternal life thing that we're told about? What is this life and life more abundantly thing that we're promised? Verse 3 tells us. And this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And this is why we have no clue why our lives are such a mess. God has made us to see that we are sinners in need of a Savior and has given us eyes to see that Jesus is that Savior. But our Christianity is weak. It's powerless. It's seemingly meaningless. We may have been given eternal life, but we have no clue what that means because we have never been taught that the key to eternal life, to unlocking 
all that that is, is found in knowing the Father, in knowing the Son. We've been told that it's in experiences, in emotions, in answered prayers. We have been told that the abundant life is found in full gospel experiences, in concert settings where bands whip up emotions and through vain repetition lead people to an experience. And that experience is said to be the abundant life. It is said to be the life that Christ came to give us, a life that is different other than the life that those that are not of Christ. But Jesus, however, said otherwise. He told these men, men that he cared for, taught truth to, revealed truth to, explained truth to, that eternal life was this, one thing, not many, not a few, and not multiple choice. This is eternal life, that they know you. And he even specifies how we are to know him in order for us, for him to be our eternal life, as our only true God. The word only is given to us in order that we understand that our faith must be in him alone. And true is given to us to reveal that our faith must be in the one that is true, the one that is revealed in the word of God. He alone is the one true God. We don't get to decide concerning God, what he's like and not like. He is the only true God, and faith in him and him alone is true life. But then why does he add, and Christ Jesus whom you've sent? Because if knowing God is the the only true God is eternal life, and if God is a triune God like we just were talking about, then why is the spirit left out? Is he a lesser class citizen, like a third class citizen? This is why we must be biblical, why we must know the word and allow the word to master us. In John chapter 1, verse 18, John tells us, no one has ever seen God. We will never see God. The only true God who is eternal life. But then John explains what he means in saying that no one has ever seen God because he says, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. This is one of the reasons for the incarnation so that God can be seen, known. We see the only true God when we see Jesus. We see the Father when we see the Son. Not a junior version, not a lesser version, not the heir to the throne. This is why we must know God, to know the eternal life that we have been given. And it's all wrapped up in Christ. Knowing him will lead us to knowing the oneness of the truth of the Godhead. In him it is found. God is one, the Father, is God who promised a redeemer to our federal head, Adam. The Son is God, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, 
taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And it is through the Christ going, through Jesus going, that the Spirit comes, the Spirit of truth that regenerates your heart, gives you eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart that can love. He's sent from the Father and the Son. He teaches and reveals only that which he has received from the Son, which the Son received from the Father. The Father sent the Son. The Son came and made eternal life possible. He came and made real life possible for those that the Father gave to the Son, those that the Son loves and those are the ones to whom the Spirit is sent, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. And it is to these in whom the Spirit indwells. Eternal life is found in the one and true God who is triune in nature, the Father in heaven who we will never see, the Son who took on human form and now lives in his glorified human body and is seated next to his Father, and the Spirit who is indwelling us. This is also why Jesus spoke of himself in the third person in verse 3, when he says, And the one whom you sent, Jesus Christ. Jesus used the third, per the third person in this verse because just as much as he's giving them the revelation of what true life is, he is also, at the same time, telling them that the essential part of giving them this eternal life is him, that he is an essential part of this eternal life. But what does this eternal life, this other life that you keep talking about, David, what is it? What does it look like, feel like, if it's not found in experiences or events or emotions? Well, Jesus answered that question for us in verse 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. The life that Christ came to give us, has given us, is found in God. And it is made manifest through work. This isn't the first time that Jesus has said that he has done that he has done the work that he was sent to do. John 4, 34, he says, My food is to do the will of him who has sent me and to finish his work. John 5, 36, But I have a greater witness than that of John, for the works which the Father has given me to finish, the same works that I do, bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. He's even told us what the will and work of the Father is. John 6, 40, for it is my Father's will that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on that last day. Jesus knew that the life that he came to give was found only in the Father. He knew that the Father is eternal life, and he demonstrated to us what living the abundant life looks like, how it's fleshed out, because Jesus is the perfect leader. He has led by example. His entire life was one that was given over to doing the will of the Father, doing the works of the Father. 
Because in the Father is eternal life. Now you might be able to grasp why this life and life more abundant thing seems so distant, so vague. Why it's meaningless. Because we've been searching for it in emotions rather than actions. In events rather than obedience. In fun rather than holiness. Jesus knew that life is found in doing the will, doing the work of the Father. He even tells us this very thing in John 6, 27. He says, don't work for the food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God, has pla- the, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Verse 4, though, can lead you to ponder a few things. Should lead you to ponder a few things. You should be thinking, if the cross was the will of the Father, then why does Jesus say here in verse 4 that he's already glorified the Father by accomplishing all that he has been given to do? If he's already accomplished before he went to the cross, then there's nothing more to do. Once again, we must allow the word of God to rule over us and never try to reverse the order. Christ made it clear that he came to die. This has been his message from, to these men from the very beginning. As he told to them in chapter 12, verse 33, when he said, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. But Jesus was so absolutely certain concerning the love and power of his father the life that he came to give, that he could speak of the hardest challenge that he would ever face, the separation from the loving Father, as if it was already over. In the Father, it was a done deal. There was no wiggle room to question if Jesus would waver or not, if the Father would accomplish the resurrection of the Son or not. There was no question that the Father would flinch and not pour out the full wrath of his his on his Son. Because if he did, it would nullify the redemption of the elect. It was a done deal. This was the will for the Father, for his Son. And this has great implications for us. Saints, God has a will for you as well. Listen to God's will for us. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus to you. Do we do that? Or how about 1 Thessalonians 4.3-5 For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of, of lust like the Gentiles who don't know God. How are we doing in that? How about 1 Peter 2.15? For it's God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Or how about 1 John 2.15-17? Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, 
the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its, its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Hebrews 10, verse 36. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he promised. You're sitting there saying the same thing I am saying. This is impossible. I can't do this. Or you might be that person who loves lists, a checklist. Give me a checklist and I'm good to go. Loves being told what to do in order to stay focused. And because of you are that person, you've tried to do this before and never found true life, abundant life in it. You just found frustration and failure. And the reason for that frustration and failure is found in the focus and effort. Because listen to the, how the author of Hebrews tells us that we can do the will of the Father. We can. When he says, Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, may he equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's Hebrews 13, verses 20 and 21. It is in seeking God. It is in knowing God, the only true God that we find life. It is through Jesus, not in the works. The works are a manifestation of love. The works are the tools that are used to bring us into sanctification. The works are not the end. They're not even the means to the end. The works are the benefits of the end. They are the tools of the end. They are the means for refining, the means for the sanctifying. David understood the how of the abundant life. He said, I delight to do your will, O oh my God, your law is within my heart. Psalm 40, verse 8. Now you might be able to see how this murdering, fornicating, lying man could be said to be a man after God's own heart. Doing the will of God is the heart of God. And as David found out, hiding the word of God deep in his heart is knowing God. This is why we can no longer be slack in knowing the word reading the word, making the word the center, the center of our lives, the food and drink of our lives. Because this is how we are to know God. It's not through emotions, quiet times, events, concerts. David, a man, a man who the word said is a man after God's own heart, said that knowing God is found in his word. And this was before the new covenant was even given. And that one that is telling us of this abundant life, this real life, should be the one that we should listen to concerning this matter. Not people. We should be listening to that one. And what are we told of this one, this mediator? How is he described to us? John 1.1 1, 1. In the beginning was the word. 
and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We're told that he's the Word. Saints, we claim to be people of the book. We claim sola scriptura as our guiding principle. We shake our heads at those that diminish the word, that change the word to enable them to live as they desire. We know that you can't do this and know God. But are we actually people of the book? We may in our heads hold this as truth, but in practical application, is this true? Do we hide the word of God in our hearts? Do we read this book? Do we study it? How much time do you allocate to this book on a daily basis? Do you allocate any time in a 24-hour period of each day? How many of the 1,440 minutes that God gives you every day, how much of that do you give to studying the Word of God? Am I trying to shame you? If you claim Christ as your Savior, if you claim to be of the redeemed, if you claim to be saved, and you don't do the bare minimum of opening the word daily, yes, shame on you. But it's not me that is bringing shame on you. It's you. Because this is eternal life that they know God, the one and only true God that sent, and the one that you sent, Jesus Christ. If you don't do the basics, since you don't do the basics, aspects of the nature and being of God, which is our life, such as are what is described for us in verse 5, are lost on you. When he says, and now, Father, glorify me, in your own presence, that I glorify that with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. In verse 4, Jesus said he had completed the work that he had been given to do. In verse 5, he now tells the Father, now glorify me. In both of these verses, he speaks of time. In verse 4, in the past tense. Verse 5, in the present tense. But the reality is that the completion had not happened yet. And for this reader, Reason neither had the glorification, at least not in what we know as a time-space continuum. And in verse 5, we have this little thing that occurs that should make you feel just a bit uneasy. What does Jesus mean when he says, and now, Father, glorify me? Is he giving the Father a command? Is he that spoiled child telling the father to give him what he deserves? Or is he petitioning the father, asking something from him, like an employee asking an employer to go for their paycheck, or a student asking the teacher, can I go to the bathroom? This is paramount for us to grasp, to understand. If we are to understand and get verse 3, that tells us this is eternal life, that you know that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. This is imperative understanding why now, at the end of this upper room discourse, Jesus begins to pray out loud in front of these men and praise the things that he does. We know that he was a man of prayer, that he prayed often, 
that even taught his disciples how to pray. And we know that later in this evening, he will go to the Father once again in prayer. Only then he leaves these men and seeks the Father on his own. But why here? Why now does he begin to pray? And why does he pray what he does pray? Because he is the good shepherd. He is leading by example. We know that which is at hand, the hour that was upon him, the one that weighed heavy upon him. His heart was troubled, which is what he said back in chapter 12. What do we do when our hearts are troubled? How do we act? Do we just power through on our own strength? Or do we flee? Or we just melt down in a pool of tears and just hope that that thing is just going to go away? This is why we need to know God. And folks, you cannot, will not know God outside of knowing his word. And this is why our walk is the way that it is. We don't know the life that he has given us as being any different than the life that we had prior to having been redeemed. Think about that. How is your life different? If Christ is giving you life and life more abundantly, how is your life different than it was before you were redeemed? Before you were set free from the wrath that we deserve, bought at such a high cost that all the money in the world couldn't even begin to compare with the blood that was required to purchase us and make us children of God. In verse 1, Jesus began this prayer by acknowledging that the hour was upon them. The hour has come. And yes, this hour would bring pain and suffering. And worst of all, it's going to bring separation from the Father as he poured out the full wrath for our sins on the Son. But this hour also brings redemption, reconciliation, peace. And this hour was the will of the Father. It was the will of the Son. It was the will of the Spirit. It is the will of God. But it was the reality of verse 3 in what eternal life is. That is what makes the reality of verse 1 glorious. And it's the reality of verses 1 and 3 that unlock the reality of verse 5. Both the time, space, question, and the command given by Jesus. The answer is rooted in the social dynamics of the Trinity. A social dynamics that we can't fully fathom. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. And the Spirit is not the Father. But all three are God. They are equal in power and perfection, in wisdom, justice, truth. He is eternal, infinite, unchangeable. Yes, the Son is submitted to the Father, as we're told in chapter 5, verse 30. But he is not less than the Father, as we're told in chapter 1, verse 1. Because the Father and the Son are completely satisfied in each other, because they are love, the statement made by Jesus in verse 5 can be a command and a request, and in neither case is he out of line, or is he approaching a superior. Because in the beginning was the Word, 
the word was with God and the word was God. Because all things were made that were made by him and nothing that was made was not made outside of him. Because we are chosen before the foundation of the world to be his. Because we were given as a people to the son by the father. Chosen before creation itself. Because the Son loves the Father and does only that which he sees him doing. Because the Father loves the Son and has given him all things, shown him all that he is doing. Because of these truths, the Son desired to glorify the Father through submission to the plan of redemption that they had put in place long before let there be light was ever spoken. Because of the social dynamics found in the Trinity, it was the desire of the Father to glory in their love through the giving of you and me to the Son. And because of love, the Son humbly, obediently stepped out of his glory into humanity and lived perfectly, sinlessly, completely human, because of the life that is found in the Father, the love of the Father, and his desire to make manifest the reality of his Father to those that the Father had given his Son as a love offering, those who the Son loved and demonstrated that love to through acts of obedience in living a perfect sinless life, who led by example in laying down his life each and every moment of every day until the hour came that he gave the full measure and gave his spirit. This is the God that we are told is eternal life. This is the God that we have been given the privilege to call Father. This is the God that we have been given the spirit of truth by to lead us into all truth by, who has given us his word, which is truth. And this is how we are to know this God. We emulate the one that has gone before us. We emulate the one who has a light for our path, a lamp for our feet. We follow the leader. Outside of him, this is impossible. But because he stepped down out of eternity, took upon flesh, just like ours except without sin, lived a perfect life, died in our place, has risen from the grave, and now sits next to his Father in his glory, ever making intercession for us, because of this truth, we can emulate our Savior. We have been given the mind of Christ. We have been given the spirit of Christ. We have been given the peace of Christ, the life of Christ. These are ours now. We need to just start walking in them. We just need to start following the good shepherd, the only really good leader. And we do that by emulating him. And we do that by beginning to know him. I want to warn you that there are those out there that will tell you that Christianity is just trying to brainwash you. And they're right. 
this is the will of God for you. That you be brainwashed. That you be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That you have the mind of Christ. That you emulate your Savior. Because he has given us life. Eternal life. And this is that eternal life. That they know you. The only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Who you have sent. Saints, know God. Make this the banner that flies over the entirety of your life because he is your life. He's eternal life. And he has given you this life. It's yours. Now. Not in the future. It's now. He's given this life to us now. Possess it, claim it, know it, and glory in it. Because this life is glorious. Think on this God who is eternal life. This life is glorious. This God, this Father, this Son, this Spirit, they are worthy to receive all glory and honor. And we do that by knowing him and making him known. Let's pray.